The word psychedelic may conjure visions of hippies dancing in the mud at Woodstock or Grateful Dead fans. Taking a psychedelic may produce actual visions. It gives me new perspective on my mind. What I've noticed before is that I realize that my mind is a far larger place than I realize on an everyday basis. As if I spend most of my time in this garden of my mind, but there's a gate at the bottom of the garden leading out into a big forest. But psychedelic probably does not bring to mind images of white lab coats and clinical trial research. We've been studying these drugs as potential treatments for mood disorders like major depression. It may sound trippy, but drugs that once defined the counterculture are now being considered as treatments for serious mood disorders and even neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. Is this another dawning of the age of Aquarius? Or might they really work? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, the substance psilocybin that puts the hallucinogenic magic in magic mushrooms is now driving clinical trials for a new generation of drugs. You'll hear what psilocybin does to the brain and why some researchers think that good trips could also be good medicine. It's our regular look at critical thinking, skeptic check, shroom with a view. Humans didn't make the first psychedelics, fungi did. More than 200 species of fungi produce the powerful psychedelic compound psilocybin, for example. While the fungi seem to take this compound in stride, the humans who ingest them can really trip out on the mind-altering effects. About 45 minutes after you take the drug, you start to feel the initial effects. Uh, there's a building over time where people uh, have more and more pronounced changes in the way that they think, in the way that they feel, and even things like their perceptions of uh, time and the space around them. All of that becomes quite altered and can be altered for a long period of time, usually somewhere in the neighborhood of four to six hours. Now research facilities like Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where Albert Garcia Romeo works, are studying psilocybin and other psychedelics for the treatment of disease, well, we got interested in this mind-altering aspect of fungi during our episode with biologist Merlin Sheldrake a little while back. But we weren't able to follow up on one remarkable aspect of some fungi in that episode, which is their production of psilocybin. These fungi are known as magic mushrooms, or just shrooms. How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures is the subtitle to Dr. Sheldrake's book, Entangled Life. This is the Change Our Minds part of our interview with him. Psilocybin is a, a what we call a psychedelic compound produced by certain species of fungus. It slips into the workings of our nervous system uh, and binds to receptors that normally receive serotonin, which is a common neurotransmitter in our brains and in our bodies. And so it changes the way that we experience our bodies. And that's why they're colloquially called magic mushrooms. By the way, have you taken them? Uh, yes, I've taken them. Yeah, I guess you wouldn't be able to write about them if you hadn't taken them. Um, describe what that's like to take them. What does it do? How does it change your brain? So when I've experienced these states before, um, I can't really say how it changes my brain because 
I don't know what's going on in my brain. All I know is what's going on in my experience. Um, but it changes my experience in such a way that it gives me new perspective on my mind. What I've noticed before is that I realize that my mind is a far larger place than I realize on an everyday basis. Um, that I spend time in actually quite a small part of my mind. As if I spend most of my time in this garden of my mind, but there's a gate at the bottom of the garden leading out into a big forest. And uh, these psychedelic states can encourage you to leave the garden and go out and explore this forest. You didn't feel fearful. I felt many things and I had experiences that that were a bit fearful. I had experiences which were elated and euphoric, uh, blissful in turn. So uh, the whole range of human experience can pass through a, a mushroom trip. It's not a, a stereotyped experience in the sense that it produces the same effect every time. It opens us to ourselves, it opens us to our minds, and the type of experience we have is dependent on where we happen to be, who we happen to be with, um, the environment and how stimulating the environment is, what kind of stimulation the environment is providing. But it's a trip that has a beginning and an end, right? It's just over the course of a few hours? Yes. Then why is it that psilocybin is being considered a treatment for depression and neurologic diseases such as Alzheimer's or something like PTSD? How would it help with those afflictions unless taking your mind out of them temporarily? So what this recent wave of research into the effects of psilocybin are showing is that Psilocybin relaxes um, the rigid habits of our minds and of our thoughts, allows us to, to think and experience in new ways. That can be helpful for people suffering with depression, for example. When new connections in the mind open up, new pathways of thought and experience become possible. Um, the grip of our expectations, the grip of our habitual patterns of thought is loosened uh, and we're able to to feel and perceive in new ways. And that can be really an important thing. Psilocybin is produced by more than 200 species of mushrooms. The, the mushrooms aren't going on mushroom trips. Maybe they are going on mushroom trips. Why do they produce psilocybin? What, what use is it to them? This is a question which has been poured over for years by mushroom enthusiasts, um, ecologists, and biologists of all sorts. and. The short answer is that no one is sure. Uh, it's thought that the first magic mushroom evolved about 75 million years ago or so, so long before humans arose. And what it did for these mushrooms is hard to say. It's clear that it served some purpose because the ability to produce psilocybin passed between different species of mushroom by what's called horizontal gene transfer. Um, and the suite of genes needed to produce psilocybin stayed intact as it passed between these different species, suggesting that it served a purpose. It wasn't just some chemical byproduct accumulating in uh, metabolic bywater. Um, but what it did for these mushrooms is unclear. So one possibility is that it served as a deterrent to insect pests, um, that insects who ate these mushrooms would become distracted or maybe have their minds taken off their next meal. Um, this is a possibility, but there are many species of insect which live uh, quite happily on the species of magic mushrooms. And so if it's a deterrent, it doesn't seem to be 
very effective. Um, another possibility is that it serves as a lure, somehow changing insect behavior in a way that benefited the fungus, perhaps that helped it spread its spores. Uh, so the answer is that we're not sure, but it's something to do with the changing of insect behavior seems like the most likely option. It sounds in incredible, Merlin, all these possible therapeutic uses of these different kinds of mushrooms, but it's still early days. I wonder if we should be skeptical of their ability to treat some of these more serious diseases in a widely deployed way. Of course, skepticism is helpful when investigating any aspect of the natural world. But I think we'd be remiss to pass over these fungal medicines. In the history of human medicine, there are many examples of, uh, of fungal treatments entering the mainstream. Uh, besides penicillin, there's cyclosporin, a drug which makes organ transplants possible. Uh, statins, cholesterol-lowering statins are of fungal origin. Taxol, the blockbuster anti-cancer drug, is of fungal origin. Uh, there are many, many examples, and so um, it's not a new thing for humans to be looking for cures within the fungal kingdom. Merlin Sheldrake, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Merlin Sheldrake is a biologist and the author of Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures. Okay, well, after talking to Merlin, we had a ton of questions. What was the current status of research into psilocybin? I mean, we trust Merlin and all, but he is such a fan of fungi that maybe he couldn't be objective about the potential benefits. After all, if psilocybin and other psychedelics are so promising as a treatment for disease, why haven't they been studied until now? Well, it turns out they had. <laughs> In fact, today's research is a flashback to the promising results produced by decades of research beginning in the early 1940s. You know, until the 1970s, there was uh, over 10,000 people administered LSD in different types of research studies, uh, showing benefits in very wide-ranging conditions from pain to addictions to different types of mental health and palliative care applications. My name is Albert Garcia Romeo. I'm an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. In those years, psychedelics were proving to be exciting psychiatric treatments, and it was by way of psychology that mind-altering drugs would move from the laboratory into the counterculture. In the 1960s, the Harvard University clinical psychologist Timothy Leary began to explore the effects of psychotropic substances on the mind. And along with Richard Albert, who later became American spiritual leader Ram Das, he founded the Harvard Psilocybin Project. And their methods were daring, a little too perhaps, because after a couple of years, Leary and Albert were fired for administering psilocybin to their undergraduate students. Now, maybe the students didn't mind, but the Harvard Psilocybin Project ended. Timothy Leary, however, was just getting started. Convinced, even evangelical, about the benefits of LSD and other psychedelics, Leary widely advocated that people open their minds to them. He even discussed the benefits of psychedelics in a 1966 appearance on the Merv Griffin Show. So I went to Mexico, and a friend of mine who was an anthropologist uh, told me about uh, a method which had been used by the Indians in Mexico, the medicine men, the priests, uh, before the white man came. They use mushrooms, they're called sacred mushrooms. So one afternoon, 
he brought over a bag of these mushrooms, and I ate seven of them. And I learned more in those five hours than I had learned studying, uh, doing research in psychology and treating people as a psychotherapist. Months later, Timothy Leary, his hair now longer and flowers tucked behind his ears, was the leader of a movement urging hippies in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park to bend consciousness with LSD. This is the dawning of the age. And people did. American kids were soon dropping acid and dancing at Woodstock. Psychedelics helped fuel the youth-driven counterculture, but some scientists who studied the mind thought Timothy Leary had simply gone too far and was giving science a bad name. Disapproving elected officials worried that hippie culture was careening toward a cliff. The Vietnam War raged, and so did the protests against it. The late 1960s, it was one LSD swirl. With the social fabric of society seemingly threatened, President Nixon wanted to restore order, and to that end, he created a poster villain of drug culture. It was the so-called high priest of LSD, Mr. Nixon called Timothy Leary, the most dangerous man in America. And so that really helped push the field back into a more taboo area, as well as some of the kind of cultural trappings of the time with the Nixon administration and the war on drugs, which then put cannabis and the psychedelics into this highly restricted status in about 1970-71. We must wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one in the United States, the problem of dangerous drugs. Prohibitions against hallucinogens became codified under the Controlled Substance Act of 1970. Money for research into psychedelics dried up, and for 30 years there was no more grant-funded tripping in the lab. But slowly, Drugs started to make their way back into research labs. Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine was one of the first to renew study into mood-altering substances. I wasn't actually involved at the time, but my uh, mentor, Dr. Roland Griffiths, started working in this area at Hopkins um, back around 1999-2000. So I was just getting out of high school at the time. When I finally finished all of my schooling and came back to work at Hopkins in 2012, that was a place where, you know, culturally you're seeing a lot more interest and acceptance. And a lot of that was predicated on some of the initial work that was happening through Hopkins uh, and other places where they're really starting to show uh, not only safety of administering these drugs in controlled settings, but also these real potential benefits, particularly for mental health conditions. Research picks up where it had been left off in the late 1960s with a particular focus on psilocybin and that's where we are today. And this is almost the end of our trip through tripping history. We'll hear later from Dr. Albert Garcia Romeo about the research into psilocybin today. By the way, an interesting note about Timothy Leary, something that has always uh, favorably impressed me. He was a proponent of space travel, not just the kind you take with your mind. After he died in 1997, a vial of his ashes was launched into orbit along with that of the creator of Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry. And now they're both far out, man. But there's another important and extensive backstory for research into mind-altering substances, because before the research in the 20th century, there were millennia of use and experimentation with psychedelics. They've been around as long as prehistory, uh, as far as we're able to tell. You know, the archaeological record has different uh, depictions of mushrooms in indigenous cultures 
uh, going back to cave paintings and uh, rock art, 10,000 years old. And now, a discovery in a cave in California has offered the first physical evidence that some people experimented with altered states of consciousness centuries ago. That's next on our regular look at critical thinking. It's Skeptic Check, Shroom with a View on Big Picture Science. You could say mind-altering substances have had a long clinical trial. Indigenous people have taken psychotropics found in local plants and fungi for millennia as part of sacred healing and spiritual rituals. Psychotropic substances were administered in many ways, eaten, sniffed, smoked, or even used to create an infused drink. And now there is physical evidence that the flower datura, a plant with powerful psychoactive properties, was used to induce altered states and inspire cave paintings among the Chumash people of Southern California. The evidence for that? Chewed wads of the plant were stuffed into cave crevices the way you might stick a bit of gum on a wall. This was recently reported in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. David Wayne Robinson is an archaeologist in the School of Forensic and Applied Sciences at the University of Central Lancashire in the UK. Sandra Hernandez is a spokesperson for the Tejon Indian tribe, which has links to the Chumash people. They shared the discovery made in Pinwheel Cave. The most prominent thing that you see is this uh, big red pinwheeling painting. And it has these, uh, this, this center spoke, this circular design in the middle, and radiating off it these sort of S-shaped sinuous designs that are a bit thicker at the base. And as, they, as the S-shape tails off, it goes into these little nice little filaments at the end. So it sounds like a pinwheel, yeah. and it gives it the name of the cave, which yeah. is a pinwheel yeah. cave. But you found something else stuffed into the walls, I understand. What did you find? Well, uh, when we first went to the cave, we we saw just fibrous material. In in a lot of these pockets, there's these little pockets all over the ceiling, dozens and dozens of these. And there are shoved into them, crammed into them, this, it, it looks like very pulpy, woody material, fibrous material. Some of it's tannish, some of it's uh, dark brown. And we didn't know exactly what they were, but they appeared to be this thing that we call quids in archaeology, archaeology speak. And quids are chewed up material, material that you would chew usually on the side of your mouth. If you think of someone like chewing tobacco, it's kind of the same thing. You, you chew it on the side of the mouth and then you spit out the, the remains. I think that it's important to kind of lay out overall that the Tohon tribe, we are Kitanamuk, we are one of the tribes that used this central area, it being a a place of um, sacredness for us, a place of gathering, and a place where ceremony was conducted. Um, All those things being very important to us culturally. What was the plant that you found? Well, the plant, as it turned out to be, was Datura, Datura Riti, which is uh, the local version of what's called Jimson weed plant. Um, They have these white, big white, beautiful trumpet flowers. And one key bit of information about this flower is it's a a psychedelic, isn't it? No. I think psychedelic is the wrong term. Oh, goodness. Uh, How about hallucinogen? Well, yeah, hallucinogen is a much better term. Um, Yeah, because um, psychedelic is really linked towards uh, LSD and and a particular kind of imagery that arises through processed, manufactured drugs. 
and and this is this is this is more of what's called an entheogen and an entheogen is a plant that is revered and utilized by traditional peoples in a way that Sandra was talking about in a sacred manner. Right. Thank you so much for that clear definition, Dave, because I think that that's what I get asked the most in terms of, Mm. I mean, even so much as, oh, okay, so you, your people got high, you know, and it's like, um, no, we weren't getting high. We were ingesting plants to be able to procure vision and cure Mm -hmm. illness. That's what's stated in our tribal archives. So that's very important to understand as tribal people throughout Indian country, we say drugs and alcohol were never traditional to us. Never. We ingested and partook of nature to be able to procure visions and cure illness. And I think that it's important to note that um, within our Kitanamuk tribal archives, it stated that Zatora was processed and drank. It was a, a drink. It also states that it left you dead, like a dead man all day. That's one of the actual quotes we have on it, as well as it was taken in several ceremonies three times, three days apart. So that's a really serious ceremony when you're talking about, you know, spread over, you know, this nine day plus period of time. Do those notes say that they're for like adolescent ceremonies, for coming of age ceremonies? Uh, Correct. It's often um, referenced more for um, young men Mm. coming through ceremonial rite and uh, puberty times that they were going to be linked up to their healers, to those spirits that would assist them throughout the rest of their future. And Dave, what are the active ingredients in Datura that that produce these, these visions? There's, there's a whole cocktail of different um, compounds that are in the plant, uh, and the two most prominent are atropine and scopolamine. So these compounds affect the neuroreceptors in, in the brain. Uh, they can have very profound effects. So one of the common uh, things that happens with the Tikanatura is uh, you get extreme dry mouth. And so, you know, atropine is used for certain surgeries where you want to reduce the uh, amount of fluid that's in the esophageal passageway. But it can it can create a, a scenario where you don't remember taking it and you completely accept whatever reality that is occurring. Oftentimes, people report meeting and talking to people who perhaps lived in, in great distances or they're uh, people who have passed and uh, you'll be having conversations with them. Your landscape can entirely change, so you think you're in a completely different place. And so, yeah, it's it's just a it's a very powerful reality altering entheogen, and and this is why you needed to have uh, experienced elders, tribal elders, to look after initiates and people who took the datura uh, in in its various ways in order to make sure that they successfully navigated through this whole process. As you describe that, I would assume that Sandra, if you could make your way through an experience like that and stay steady and not not become too afraid, that would be a, a kind of passage into adulthood. It would open your mind and also strengthen confidence in yourself to be able to handle what comes your way. Absolutely. What I read about Datura is that it's a very strong hallucinogen. In fact, it could be poisonous if too much of it is consumed. 
So does the evidence suggest, I mean, I guess it does, what you're saying, Sandra, is that the Chumash people would have known how to regulate this and know not to take too much of it? Absolutely. Our California Indian people absolutely knew um, how to maintain and handle these awesome plants. And, and can I say that our analyses, the archaeological analyses of these quids, confirm that? Say more. What do you mean? Well, yeah, so when we uh, looked under magnification uh, on these chews uh, or quids, we found that they're very consistent in their size, and they were cut into shape, and then they were pounded, uh, probably in a mortar and pestle, and then they were chewed. But they potentially were soaked, so they could, they could have been first used as a drink, and then afterwards, you know, sort of repurposed and chewed. Um, we we're not sure about that process, but certainly we can see that they, uh, they're highly processed and they're uh, very careful in sort of the, the sizes that, that they're making. And Dave, were you able to date the Datura? Uh, how far back does it go? When was this cave in frequent use? Yeah, so we, we did date with um, AMS dating of the radiocarbon dating of the chews, of the quids. They're called chews and quids interchangeably, so I, I kind of go back and forth with those. Um, the, the earliest date we have goes back to 1530 AD, um, but that's that's a variable date. So it can take anywhere from about 1530 to about 1650. So the earliest date that we have pretty much is bang on around 1600 AD. And it continued through when the Spanish showed up in the late 1700s, uh, early 1800s, and through the Mexican time period following that, all the way up through the gold rush and into even into the, the mid-1800s. And that would coincide with the tribal archives. While taken and notated in 1920, they were working with um, tribal consultants that had grown up through the 1800s. So. Mm. Although the use of psychotropics among indigenous people goes back much further than just a few hundred years, I was surprised to find that this was the first physical evidence that these substances were used in a cave art site. So I'm wondering, Dave, what were scientists basing their conclusions about substance use up until now if you didn't have the physical evidence? Well, there's other places in the Americas where there is there is evidence. So they have found in archaeological deposits in the American Southwest um, peyote and detura botanical remains that looks like they're part of um, the taking of those as entheogens uh, as far back as maybe 3,000 years ago. Um, and in the rock art in the American Southwest, there are images uh, that appear to be linked to peyote and detura in many instances. But the, prob- the problem with uh, identifying this stuff is that it's it's organic and it doesn't survive very well. And in Datura, it grows everywhere. And it loves uh, sort of uh, previous sites that used to be inhabited. It loves the soils there. So even if you found evidence like Datura seeds in an archaeological excavation, you don't know if it's just residual from a plant that grew there or if people are actually using it. Mm-hmm. Have either of you tried Datura? I have not. Mm-hmm. I have not, but I'm not going to lie. I do stroke the the trumpet leaves, hoping that something will happen, but nothing's happened to date. <laughs> Wait, you stroke the trumpet leaves, the leaves and of the detura? The actual flower, it produces this white trumpet-like flower. And I've been told of its toxicity, just the plant as a whole. And every now and then, you know, I do grab a hold of the trumpet flower as I'm passing it, seeing if anything happened. But no, nothing. Sandra, I understand that many Native American religious ceremonies, sacred ceremonies, like the chewing of detour, were outlawed in the 20th century. And why was that? 
they were outlawed and that was a direct result of laws that were enacted to wipe out our culture and wipe out our our ceremonial knowledge and hand those things down to the generations that came after. Definitely very true. The Indian Religious Freedom Act that came about was enacted to bring the allowance of some, some of those ceremonies and rituals to make them not outlawed here. Well, yeah, there's been you know, a big struggle, especially with, with the taking of peyote in the American Southwest. Um, a lot of legal uh, battles and court battles, very famous cases um, where you know Native Americans who take peyote for similar reasons uh, have been fighting into courts uh, to get the, the rights to be able to do that. So this is a long struggle, and it's part of you know what she's talking about, this assault upon Native cultures that's been going on a long time. Well, today, psychedelics, such as psilocybin, are being studied in labs and universities for treatment for all sorts of disorders, mood disorders, and even dementia. And I wonder if the two of you see a connection between the Western study of hallucinogens, mood-altering substances, and the indigenous use of them hundreds, even thousands of years ago. I think there is a connection, and I think the connection has to do with the medicinal properties uh, that a lot of these plants have. So Datura is actually harvested for uh, many uh, medical applications currently by you know modern Western uh, medicine. So like atropine is used as a stimulant for if you have a low heart rate, it can be used um, to increase your stimulant. And uh, scopolamine is used as uh, for motion sickness. So one time I went out to um, the Santa Cruz Island, uh, one of the Chumash Islands, and I, I took a pill that had scopolamine in it. So I guess maybe I have tried a little bit of Datura. But um, I, I think the thing about these these plants is that you know healing isn't just a, a physical process. It's also a sort of a psychic process. And getting in touch with the parts of your, your your own psyche that really matter, and particularly when you're in these group contexts and you're you're taking, the tour is a profoundly reality altering experience, and it's something that I think needs a lot of um, coming to terms with uh, after after it's been taken. So I I think these plants uh, performed a really important role in many societies to help them connect their own sort of uh, spiritual health with their physical health. There is really no separation in in most societies' ideas about that. I I guess I was trying to marry the ideas, you know, uh, Western science and, and indigenous knowledge. And I could only hope that some of the knowledge that our California Indian people held continues to furl out in all of us that are continuing some of the cultural work still. Um, for our tribes, so that those two Western science and indigenous knowledge continue to feed off of each other and how they really do fit together. You know, they seem to be on different ends of the spectrum, but I think that the more they marry into each other, the more answers we'll continue to have about, you know, such magnificent nature. Dave Robinson and Sandra Hernandez, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I always welcome the opportunity to talk about our beautiful California lands. Sandra Hernandez is a spokesperson for the Tejon Indian Tribe. David Wayne Robinson is an archaeologist in the School of Forensic and Applied Sciences at the University of Central Lancashire.
You know, Seth, it was interesting to learn about the different kinds of mind-altering drugs. So you have the psychedelics, which are the drugs, especially LSD, that produce hallucinogens. But then psychotropics is a more general term for the drugs that affect a person's mental state. And Dr. Robinson introduced me to a new word, which was entheogen. And this is quite specific. This is a, a chemical substance, typically of plant origin, that is ingested in order to alter consciousness for a spiritual or religious reason. Um, and the detura flower is an example of that. The other thing that we heard from Sandra Hernandez was about the efforts of the government, the federal government, to shut these things down, these ancient practices, you know, simply because the mores of the late 1960s, early 1970s didn't make them, uh, you know, acceptable to them. I'm glad to hear that that's been rescinded. Next, what current research into psilocybin and other mind-altering substances means for the treatment of mood disorders and neurodegenerative disease. It's Skeptic Check, Shroom with a View on Big Picture Science. We heard earlier that research into LSD and other psychotropics was halted in the early 1970s because of the association of these substances with counterculture and recreational drug use. These events had prejudiced the government and some cultural opinion shapers against the research. And it wasn't just Timothy Leary's work at Harvard that was stopped, but all the promising medical research in this area. And that was work that went back to the 1940s. You could say that the baby had been tossed with the bathwater. And now you could say that many research institutions that are studying psychedelics have become advocates for drug rehabilitation. That is, rescuing the reputation of these substances as worthy candidates for the treatment of disease. And this is anything from mood disorders to neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's. Albert Garcia Romeo describes this research, including the promising results at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where he is an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences. We've been studying these drugs as potential treatments for mood disorders like major depression. And for uh, many of those people, they are reporting what we call a rapid acting antidepressant effect. So you're seeing those people specifically help feel better um, within about 24 hours of having taken the drug. For a healthy person who takes it, um, you know, there could be a real wide range of uh, emotional states that could play out. Um, some people would get could get euphoric, giggly, laugh, and uh, have a good time. Uh, other people could have uh, real intense sadness come up or fear, anxiety, paranoia. Um, so it can really amplify emotions uh, to a great degree. That sounds a little bit like alcohol, which, you know, clearly has different effects on people. I mean, some people get, indeed, you know, pretty happy, and other people get, you know, just the opposite. Yeah, I think that that's actually a good comparison, because, you know, if you're at a wake and you're, you know, mourning the loss of a friend and people are drinking, you know, you could see some people get quite sad, and, uh, you know, rightfully so. And if somebody's celebrating, you know, their sports team won or something, and they're having a beer, um, you know, they can be elated, and they're using the same substance um, and having quite different experiences. And with psilocybin, you know, we see a similar type of thing happen, which is that depending on um, where the drug is taken and what's going on with the person, 
uh, it's going to have an influence on the way the drug is experienced. We have the recreational use of psilocybin. We've talked about that a little bit, the magic mushrooms use, if you will, psychedelics. Do we actually know how it works? I mean, is there some way to describe that without taking, uh, I, I don't know, biochemistry 101? From the sort of pharmacological perspective, um, we've been able to identify the serotonin 2A receptor as a major site of action, meaning that when we give people or animals um, a drug like psilocybin, and then we um, add one of these uh, serotonin 2A receptor blockers to the mix, basically it stops the effects of the drug. And so people don't have many of those psychoactive effects. The receptor is instrumental in communication between neurons, right? Do I have that right? So it's kind of interfering with your wiring in a, in a way. Yeah. And so serotonin is one of the major neurotransmitter systems that you know regulates our mood, our sleep, our appetite. And the serotonin 2A receptor specifically is one where these psychedelic drugs bind to. And, and yes, when it goes there, it acts as though it were serotonin and it creates these uh, downstream cascading mechanisms and a bunch of other systems that we're just starting to sort of tease apart to understand. Yeah, I can imagine that's not easy. I mean, if I mess with the wiring in my radio here, not that there is much wiring anymore, but, but, but if I were to do that, you know, the, what came out the other end might not be better. I mean, it might be better, but it might not be. Yeah. And so in a way, it, you know, again, humans have been doing this for uh, as long as recorded history. And so, you know, the way that these drugs work is that they kind of hack our internal um, wiring. Exactly. And, and psilocybin does that as well. Psilocybin is not LSD, but are they chemical cousins? Yes, they are. They're um, both uh, closely related in terms of the way that they function in the brain and um, that the way they're made up. This renewed interest in research into psychedelics, what is the general focus of this research? Initially, the work was really looking at what are the effects of these drugs in healthy, normal uh, volunteers, as we call them, just people who are coming in without any uh, significant mental health problems, and you know, finding that they were producing these very um, highly meaningful and uh, profound states, uh, sometimes referred to as spiritual by some people as well. Uh, in the laboratory. And so that kind of opened up the uh, pathway or really reopened up this uh, line of questioning of, well, how can we use that um, in psychiatry to help people who might be struggling with conditions like depression, anxiety, terminal illness, as well as uh, addictions? Well, Al, can you give me an example of a condition that you're working on now? Absolutely. We're working um, on a number here at Hopkins, but um, we have a new study in people with um, early stage Alzheimer's disease, and we're looking at whether it can help these folks um, just deal with the, the mood-related problems that come along with the condition, such as depression and apathy, um, but also to see if it can help enhance memory and cognitive function, which would be very exciting, of course, since that's such a huge problem in terms of the public health impact. Um, you know, we've done a lot of work with cigarette smokers, which is also another huge public health problem. Uh, I've been working on that with my colleague, Dr. Matt Johnson, really trying to incorporate uh, high-dose psilocybin administration with counseling to help people quit smoking and finding really good and positive results, um, better than usual, uh, usually what you would find with our kind of traditional treatments that are available. So what you're saying is that, at least for these conditions that you've just uh, enumerated, it actually works. Well, we don't have the large scale, you know, data that would be necessary to say conclusively, yes, this works. But what we do have is a lot of uh, smaller studies 
that have been conducted or that we're in the process of collecting data to look at. Um, and so we can give you a better answer on that. Al, how long does it work? I mean, if I smoke pot to get high, you know, I return to sea level in much less than a day. What about psilocybin? I mean, do I have to take it every, every day for it to be useful against any of these conditions? So that's, you know, a really great question. And I think that's one of the things that sets these drugs apart from any other drugs and other pharmacotherapies is that there seem to be, you know, what you call the acute effects, which is when the drug is in your body and in your system, you know, six to eight hours, perhaps. But what we found is that people are reporting benefits and changes that are lasting a couple of months or even more than a year later. And that's after a single high dose administration. And so that's where you start to wonder what's going on because it potentially points to some sort of rewiring or reorganization of the person's brain structure or of their, you know, the way that their brain is functioning, uh, you know, in a way that's consistent with better health or better well-being. Yeah, it sounds like it must have some real physiological effects. I mean, again, to use that (laughs) metaphor, if I were to mess up the wiring in a radio, uh, that's one thing. But if I re-soldered the wires to the new configuration, then that's something else. Yeah, and my friend, Dr. Fred Barrett, uh, just published a paper this year showing that you know, emotional processing and the way that the brain is, is doing that is altered for up to a month after a high dose administration of the drug. And so we're able to measure that, you know, before and, and immediately after and even a month after and see that there are dynamic changes in the way that the brain is communicating between uh, many of these major hub regions and processing information. So if you had one of these conditions, you're taking psilocybin, it might just become a, a regular regimen. You know, you take a you take the material, whatever, you ingest it, you get shot with it, whatever happens, and you do it on a regular basis like so many conditions. Um, I mean, you could hopefully t- do it once or twice and maybe be done with it altogether. Um, it's possible that some people might need to take it more like once a year, perhaps, especially if they have severe treatment-resistant depression. But for instance, with our cigarette smokers, you only need to quit once and be successful to kind of get over that hump. And we've had success with people who have uh, quit smoking for years and years after a couple of high dose administrations in the lab. And, you know, for them, there's really no need to go back to that afterwards. Given the social attitudes about psychedelics that have hung around, you know, even half a century after the summer of love and all that stuff, should we be skeptical of this approach? I mean, thinking, oh, these guys, you know, they're working on psychedelics and maybe that's fun for them, but, you know, this is not serious medicine or something like that? Well, I think it's really important to have healthy skepticism around any sort of new treatment and psychedelics included. Um, These are not for everyone. There are people that we screen out of these types of research studies because we don't think it would be safe for them to have these high-dose psychedelic experiences. Um, And there are real risks, just like with most medications, um, of adverse reactions and side effects that could be problematic. You know, we've been very careful to um, pay close attention to that because of the social history that we've talked about with the, um, you know, counterculture of the 1960s and the recreational use that happened then, as well as some of the other researchers who were working and, you know, which caused some pushback on this work. Um, But given all that, We've been doing our best to make sure that we do this in a way that's uh, balanced and cautious and safe for the people who come through our research studies. And, um, you know, we certainly don't want to oversell this, um, but we want to um, also highlight our enthusiasm for the, the real potential to help people with these substances. 
usually in science we can solve a problem once we understand the cause of the problem. Do we know, for example, the cause of depression? I mean, by doing these experiments, of course, you're looking for something that helps. So this is a treatment, but does it actually give you any insight into what is the cause of things like Alzheimer's or, you know, depression? You know, I do think that these drugs are going to be and, you know, have been um, powerful tools to help us understand the kind of the etiology, basically the underlying biology of these types of uh, conditions like um, neurodegenerative disorders or mood disorders. Um, but, you know, we really don't have a very solid understanding of how addiction works or how depression works. I mean, I'm from myself a pragmatist from the William James School, which is if it works, then that's that's what we're really interested in. And then, you know, we can go back to figure out how it works. And I think that's also interesting. Um, but certainly when you're talking about a person who's struggling from, you know, severe depression or with a, a really bad substance use disorder, then we're trying to find anything that can help them. And if, you know, you, the proof is in the pudding, if these people come back and say, hey, I feel better or, you know, I've been able to stop using this substance that's been a problem for years in my life, um, then that's, uh, you know, a very positive signal for us to kind of go after. I've also read that uh, psilocybin may even promote neurogenesis. I take that to mean that it can, you know, grow new brain cells. You know, when I was a kid, they told you that all the brain cells you were ever going to have were already in your head. But if you can make new brain cells, new neurons, whatever, you can change some of these conditions at a structural level. Yeah, and that's actually exactly right, because there was this idea that we had all of our neurons kind of once we were fully grown. But um, there actually is uh, evidence for neurogenesis and adult neurogenesis or the birth of new neurons in the brain. Uh, so that's kind of a shift in our understanding of how that works. Um, and more recent work uh, by David Olson and others uh, have really been showing that um, there is a potential for these drugs to uh, create new branches or new synapses and connections between neurons and other work uh, that's uh, at least suggested the possibility that psilocybin can help uh, promote neurogenesis, uh, the birth of new cells. Another use that I've uh, read about in connection with psilocybin is reducing anxiety for cancer patients. If you've been diagnosed with cancer, you know, like, I mean, you know, your, your, your mental state is not the best. Does this, uh, does this help? Do you know? Yes, uh, we've uh, published a, a nice paper in 2016 from the lab. And uh, that was also uh, another study that was done in uh, 2016 by NYU published at the same time. And those are both control trials showing that a single high dose of psilocybin uh, was providing relief from anxiety and depression in uh, distressed cancer patients that was lasting anywhere from six to nine months after the drug administration. And so absolutely with these, you know, terminal illnesses, people will have a lot of psychosocial distress and mood problems, uh, right, you know, understandably. And, um, you know, the idea that we could help them with psychedelics, the data are, are very strong there. Well, finally, Al, we've all heard about how new pharmaceuticals have to demonstrate safety first and efficacy second. And if that happens with psilocybin, if it you know goes to the FDA or whatever, can you see widespread use of this with or without a prescription? We hope to see uh, this work move through that FDA approval process. Um, it's currently in these phase two and phase three trials now to show safety and efficacy, specifically around major depression. 
And uh, the idea would be if those data are positive, then this would move to that uh, medical approval status. And then at that point, yes, that it would be able to be prescribed by uh, particular physicians and that it would also be administered probably at a specific uh, site where people would be monitored throughout the drug administration process and be prepared and screened and all that good stuff. So it wouldn't be a take to you and call me in the morning. <laughs> okay. Well, Albert Garcia Romeo, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Albert Garcia Romeo is an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Well, that is it for the show and the big picture here, Seth. Um, and the reason why this episode qualifies as a skeptic check is we're really looking at how society became skeptical about the benefits of psychedelics and psychotropics for treating disease. Yeah, it was a very promising avenue of research. And unfortunately, it kind of got sabotaged by a culture war, if you will. You know, during the era of long hair and tie-dye and possible revolution, people said anything that, you know, is connected with psychedelics is not real science. But, you know, keep in mind, these plants, these fungi have been around for at least 500 million years, the fungi even longer, and they coexist with everything else in the biosphere. So the fact that they have some effect on living things like us, that's not surprising. And so researchers are trying to take advantage of this, if you will, rewiring capability to treat diseases that involve things going on in our heads. Well, thanks to the trippy artistry of senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and intern Frida Cryer. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the mechanisms of biology. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and to our Patreon supporters. This episode of Big Picture Science is one of our regular looks at critical thinking. It's called Skeptic Check, Shroom with a View. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. You'll also find links there to the guests you've heard. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.